Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and it's the 30th of May. Last week, the Israeli government passed a budget for 2023-24, giving it a stabilising boost. However, there remains political tension across a range of issues, including judicial reform, West Bank policies, and the ultra-Orthodox service, or non-service, in the military. Compounding this are both internal divisions within the government and not insignificant pressure from the US, EU and other international bodies. To help make sense of all these issues, I'm delighted to welcome back to the Bicom podcast, Tal Shalev, the political correspondent for Wala News, one of Israel's leading news portals. Tal, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I thought we could start on the inside and then work our way out. And if we start, as I mentioned, about the, uh, the budget passing, bringing stability, bringing stability, it also exposed two major fault lines within the government, um, specifically between uh, the Ben Gvir's faction on the hard right and the ultra-Orthodox. But if we can start with, uh, with Ben Gvir and the, his Jewish power party, could you just explain where they succeeded in their budgetary demands in, within the budget? Well, that depends who you ask. <laughs> According to Ben Gvir and his party himself, they succeeded very much. Ben Gvir supposedly says that he has achieved um, nine billion shekels more for the police and his uh, of his uh, national security office. Um, even though, if you ask members of the opposition who actually have been looking in the numbers of the budget while it was passed in the Knesset, they say that there's no way that there's nine, million, nine billion shekels there um, in the budget. So it depends on who you believe. Um, according to the dry numbers, Benville succeeded to bring between two to three billion shekels to his office, not more than it had in the past, but um, just, you know, relatively, um, perhaps a relative uh, spike just uh, to, you know, to appropriate it to the, uh, to the indexes and to the inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But right. there's, according to the opposition, there is no 9 billion shekels. Nevertheless, Ben Gvir said he got 9 billion shekels. And the other battle that his party was, um, was uh, leading the days ahead of the budget, in the weeks and days ahead of the budget, had to do with uh, extra budget for um, another office that Otsmayudit has, uh, um, the Negev and Galil office, uh, which is um, let, who is whose minister is uh, Ben Gvir's, one of Ben Gvir's uh, loyalists. His name is uh, Itzhak Wasserlauf, and Ben Gvir waged his battle not over the police money, but over money for the Negev and the Galil in the coalition um, budgets, which are added to the budget itself. So just, you know, um, to explain, there is the state budget, which is drafted by the offices. And then there's a tradition in Israeli politics and in Israeli co coalition building that there's a whole different section of coalition um, money given to the coalition partners in order to their own needs um, or to sectorial needs, um, which is not part of the base of the budget. 
So this amount has reached 14 billion shekels uh, under this uh, specific coalition. It's uh, breaking every record ever on how much political money has been uh, has been distributed. And Benville um, was very unhappy with the fact that Smotrich's party, Zionist uh, National Zionist Party, they had religious Zionists more coalition money than himself. So basically, until the very last minute, he was demanding to get more money, uh, 500 billion, uh, half a billion shekels more to the Negev and Galil office. And for about a week, he boycotted uh, the coalition in what is appears to be one of his favorite, you know, tactics and methods until finally Netanyahu reached an agreement at the last minute, basically giving him half of the amount, 250 million shekels. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, and, and to be honest, it's not clear if that money, if that money really existed, if it will really be passed, if it will really be transferred to that, uh, to Vasilov and to Otsmayu did. Nevertheless, Benville presented the budget as a huge success from his point of view um, and succeeded and, and has been trying to market uh, his budgetary achievements, both on the police and on the Negev Galil, even though, to be honest, it's not clear that the money, at least as he presents it, actually exists. Okay, we may come back on some of those issues, but I just wanted to pick you up on uh, on, on another aspect of, of kind of the interrelationship within Ben Gvir's own party. There was a fascinating story in the Israeli media last week about uh, splits and disputes and, uh, and, and elite uh, harsh conversation on a WhatsApp group. I wonder if you could just uh, tell the audience that probably haven't followed that, just a little bit about those details. So Benville's party, right, it's my Udit, is a new party uh, in the Knesset, and all of its lawmakers are newcomers to the Knesset. Um, interesting figures, each, each, I might add. One of those interesting figures is a guy called Almog Cohen, who was number three on Benville's list. He's, uh, he comes from uh, the south, from, uh, I think uh, he lives in Ofakim, or he was born and raised in Ofakim, um, and he used to be a border police soldier, and he's a very, I would say, a, a candid uh, lawmaker, an outspoken lawmaker, and also very unfiltered lawmaker. And um, the relationship between him and Benvir has been strained ever since the Knesset was, uh, uh, was sworn in in November, especially the relationship between Almog Cohen and Benville's chief of staff, uh, a young guy named Hanamel Dorfman, who is uh, Benville's, you know, wheeler and dealer. Um, and um, the relationship there has the, its ups and downs. Basically, Almog Cohen is been acting quite independently and not being, you know, um, um, not listening to Ben Gvir and especially not to Hanam El. And um, during this uh, fight that Ben Gvir was uh, leading against Smotrich, the finance minister, in a seeking for an, uh, more money for the Negev and Galil office, in the midst of the fight, Almol Cohen went and met with Ben Gvir, 
uh, excuse me, with Smotrich. Almog Cohen went and met with Smotrich, with the finance minister, just as Ben Gvir is fighting with them. And not only does he meet with them, he meets with them about money to the Negev and the Galil. This, of course, was perceived as a mutiny by Ben Gvir and his associates. So uh, a very open conversation uh, was leaked uh, to the press, to Amit Segal on Channel 2, uh, from their chat, their WhatsApp uh, conversation, in which basically Almog Cohen and Hanamel slam each other uh, very, very openly and very strongly. And it's clear that Almog Cohen's future in, uh, um, in Otsmayudit is unclear to the least. To, to say the least, and probably over, uh, to if we want to be precise. He was also kicked out of his uh, um, seat on the Knesset uh, Defense and Security Committee. But I think uh, it's interesting to notice these internal rifts inside Utsmayudit. If we think about who is the prime minister in this government, it's Benjamin Netanyahu and his very bad relationship with Benvir, and by the way, also with the notorious Hanamel Dorfman, his chief of staff. Netanyahu and Benvir have had a rocky start. Uh, Benvir is Netanyahu's biggest headache in the government. And there's, uh, um, there's, I would say, a theory in the political system that at some point Benvir might want to you know, leave the government or retire from the coalition without actually bringing it down just so he can, you know, try and rebuild himself uh, as an opposition to Netanyahu from the right and not inside the government where he's very much disciplined and, you know, belittled by Netanyahu. So the assumption or the theory is that at some point Netanyahu, as Netanyahu, who has a specialty in you know, breaking up parties, all of Netanyahu's political career, especially in the past few years, has been um, his genius ability to split up parties and weaken, um, you know, his rivals and his enemies from within. By the way, that's the way he brought down the previous government. Um, there's an assumption that Almog Cohen is only the first, you know, sign um, and that Netanyahu at some point will try to split up uh, Ben Gvir's party and have some of his lawmakers join the Likud and then um, make uh, Ben Gvir, you know, hurt, uh, hurt Ben Gvir and make it much more difficult for him to uh, to make any moves who will actually channel that will actually challenge Netanyahu. Very interesting. Thank you. So the other kind of uh, political block within the uh, within the governing coalition that was also potentially uh, causing the prime minister problems was the ultra orthodox party um, and certain faction of the United Torah Judaism. What were they able to extract in the budgetary negotiations and what are the implications of that? Well, first of all, uh, we should say that the ultra-Orthodox parties received their huge budgetary achievements, not in the current negotiations for the budget, but in the um, coalition negotiations in November, December, the negotiations that preceded uh, Netanyahu swearing in his government. And during mm. the course of the negotiations that preceded the government, all of Netanyahu's partners went into unprecedented details with their budgetary demands and other demands, but uh, 
for the for what we're talking about is the budgetary demands. And Netanyahu signed off to almost every demand they presented. And in also in an unprecedented matter, usually um, you know, the finance ministry is involved in coalition negotiations, especially in the budget demands that come from the parties, so that they can keep, you know, a kind of framework, a budget, a normal viable budgetary framework. This time, Netanyahu keep, uh, kept them out. Netanyahu did not have the finance ministry budget department be, it was not part of the negotiations. So the first time that we actually know how much money he gave to his partners is a week before passing the budget when he presents the um, when he presents the uh, um, coalition uh, budgets that we talked earlier, the political money. Um, mm. All in all, it's 14 billion shekels. About half of that will go to the Haredi parties. Um, and what they succeeded it, um, most importantly to achieve in the budget is A, a dramatic increase in the uh, budget and allowances for yeshiva students, um, about instead of 1.2 billion, it spiked to over 2 billion shekels that will be uh, um, um, allocated for allowances for yeshiva students. But more importantly, they succeeded to, um, to get about 2 billion shekels more uh, for their education, which does not teach um, you know, the, the, uh, cool, the cool subjects. Yeah. The regular curriculum or what we call Liba studies, the core studies. Yeah. Which are math and English. Um, up until last week when the budget was approved, um, there was a clear preference for schools that taught their students the the core curriculum of math and English. And there was a uh, there was a gap between how much money a school that did does teach these uh, uh, professions gets and a school that doesn't. Uh, the ultra orthodox schools. It's not only ultra orthodox schools, by the way. It can also apply to Palestinian schools in East Jerusalem. And uh, what the ultra orthodox uh, succeed party succeeded to get is to um, basically equate. Uh, the budgets that both schools will be that both school so systems will be getting, basically killing any incentive um, to move for for schools to move and to teach um, math and uh, and English to their students in the ultra orthodox communities. Yeah, this is widely perceived by the finance ministry as a severe blow to historic attempts to incorporate the Haredi population in A, the education system, B, in the academy, and C, most importantly, in the working force without English and math, um, without studying English and math in school, it's much more difficult for a Haredi youngster to join, to get a job in the, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, economic market or sector and be part of uh, um, the, the uh, economic and business sector. And this is probably not probably according to the finance ministry's um, predictions, this will be a severe blow to Israel's growth and uh, um, an att and any attempt to, you know, modernize 
Haredi, uh, the Haredi population and make it part of the working and industrial force. Um, so that is their main achievement. Um, and um, this was given to them in the recent budget. So the other the other big issue that is on the coming up on the agenda now, which also relates fundamentally to the ultra orthodox um, community and their politicians, will be the deadline at the end of July to pass a new draft bill. What's your assessment where this stands? Will they be able to pass it? And crucially, even if they do pass it, what will the uh, will, will it be uh, knocked down by the uh, Supreme Court, as in the past, on the grounds of uh, of uh, inequality? Um, well, it seems like, um, yes, um, they, well, A, that is the biggest next crisis that Netanyahu is going to deal with probably in the upcoming weeks. It's approaching um, by the end of July because that's when there's a Supreme Court deadline for the state to answer why it is not legislating a draft bill. Um, the ultra, the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, demanded to originally demanded to pass the uh, draft bill by the budget. That was the original deadline. Netanyahu succeeded to push the deadline by a few months back in order to pass the budget. But this um, headache is definitely going to come and it's definitely going to create another constitutional front with the Supreme Court because the current framework that is being discussed uh, in the government for the draft bill will only um, um, will only enlarge the inequality. It uh, is going to change um, the the specifics of what is the age that the uh, Jew that the yeshiva students um, are exempt from draft. That's going to lower it from 26 to 21. That is supposedly supposed to be a incentive for Haredi youths to become part of the uh, uh, working force because they will not have the excuse, they will not have to say they're going to yeshiva till the age of 26 to dodge the army, they'll be able to uh, dodge it, to, 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 to leave the yeshiva at 21. Um, nevertheless, it's going to um, instate and regulate um, the a very wide uh, ranging uh, exemption for ultra-Orthodox youth, meaning that it will not uh, answer, yes, as you said, it will not answer the Supreme Court constitutional demand for equality and is likely to be uh, striked, uh, and the court is likely to strike it down. Now, that will turn the Haredi draft bill into another constitutional crisis that might, you know, inter intervene with the uh, judicial overhaul, because the Haredi parties are going to demand an override clause in the draft bill that will uh, enable the Knesset to re-legislate the bill, even if it's disqualified by the court. And that by itself could create a constitutional crisis with the Supreme Court. So um, it's very difficult, to be honest, to predict where that is going to lead Netanyahu. It's true that the budget gives him very much uh, stability because it's much more difficult uh, to bring down the government, but that doesn't mean it's going to be quiet. The Haredi, um, the Haredi draft bill is going to be a huge crisis, especially when, you know, when we know already that the anti-reform protests 
have diverted much of their resource and focuses to the issue of inequality uh, with the uh, Haredi population already. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating uh, to watch. If I can kind of sidestep, and you've mentioned the kind of the the issue of the judicial reform. As we're speaking, the uh, the, the the sides, both from the government and the opposition, have returned to the negotiation table under the auspices of President Herzog. Um, how serious do you think these talks are in in the efforts to find a compromise, and how do you rate their success? Uh, I think it's complicated, uh, the, the answer, if it's serious or not. I think they're, um, they're serious in that respect that uh, the sides have been, the coalition and the opposition teams have been meeting for eight weeks now in a very, I would say, um, responsible, quiet manner, hand, um, and, and been having very open and candid discussions and professional discussions over constitutional changes that might or not be needed uh, in Israel. But there hasn't been any serious progress. Um, the main gaps between the two sides still persist, most notably on the core question of the Judicial Selection Committee. The coalition wants, the, wants to change the composition of the selection committee, so it will be able to appoint their own judges without having any vetoes from the Supreme Court. While the opposition adamantly opposes any changes to the system, and that is at the core, you know, of the the core of the uh, reform at the moment. Uh, but also on other issues, uh, there have there are some issues that there are small understandings, minor understandings minor issues that there has been consensus, but no like real dramatic breakthrough. A, because we're not really in a constitutional moment. We're in a very difficult and complicated uh, political moment. The coalition doesn't speak in one voice. On the one hand, there's Netanyahu who does want to have consensus agreements on some of the reform and would prefer to postpone the reform. On the other hand, you have Yariv Levin, who isn't actually part of the negotiations uh, at the president's residence, but he definitely has his proxies there. And Levin does not want to have, um, he wants to um, he wants to move forward with this reform, even if it means unilaterally. On the opposition, you have different voice, two di many different voices. Mm. Lapid and Gantz, as always, have their personal political competition, which uh, um, constantly creates, uh, you know, a two-voice uh, opposition. So the to it the, the process is serious, but there hasn't been any serious product, right, up until mm -hmm. now. And at the moment, the president is trying to negotiate some kind of mini package, which will say. Okay, we won't talk about the, you know, the core issue of the Judicial Selection Committee now. We'll postpone, but we'll continue to postpone the judicial overhaul. Uh, the coalition will commit to postpone it. And there might be minor agreements on two or three issues. But to be honest, that is just an attempt to keep talks going, um, not necessarily a real advancement or progress in the discussion. Right. So my, I suppose my next follow-up question would be, you know, if these talks do not 
produce a result. And we were still aware that the uh, the, the issue of the uh, selection committee for the judges is still on the uh, still on the, the table of the Knesset, just waiting any moment for it to be brought for its third third reading, which the coalition can presumably do within with, within hours, conceivably. Um, do you? Th I mean, and with beyond that, we're hearing, I suppose, contradictory voices even from within the Likud about whether this is a a dead deal and it's it's done, or whether it can be imminently revived, as we know Justice Minister Levine would like to see it. Which do you see that is that a fair characterization? And uh, where do you see the Likud holding on this? I think the reform at the moment is not dead and not alive. It's in uh, Netanyahu is keeping it in a you know in a respir respir under a respiratory machine, and at any moment he can um, revive it, and at any moment he can throw it uh, you know to the bin of history. But he's keeping it in between because that's the way Netanyahu wants it to be. Netanyahu does not want to have like Levine would would probably prefer, does not want to have a unilateral uh, reform. He wants to get invited to the White House in the upcoming uh, weeks or months. He wants to re recuperate uh, the Israeli economy. He wants to calm down the credit ratings. So he does not want to rush forward unilaterally with the reform. But he also doesn't want it dead. He doesn't want to kill it, A, because he has a very angry base on disappointed electoral base who um, are not uh, very happy with the fact that the government is not moving forward with the reform. Um, and he also has, you know, Yariv Levine, uh, who has been threatening to resign if the reform is not promoted in the upcoming weeks. So um, I think it's Netanyahu likes it in between. It enables him to do what Netanyahu always do, and that is speak to voices. He tells, uh, you know, he tells the Americans that he's seeking wide consensus and he tells his um, Likud comrades um, the, the reform is still alive. Now, it is still alive. Um, if talks break down uh, or blow up, if the presidential talks blow up, the coalition can on an evening's notice uh, renew the legislation of the original bills that were put on freeze or start other pieces of legislation. They have 64 seats in the Knesset and they have a majority. So that it's definitely not dead. Uh, and Netanyahu also makes a point of continuing to say that it's not dead. That is also though a negotiation tactic. Uh, the coalition is very much uh, frustrated that uh, the opposition is not making enough concessions in the presidential negotiations. And by stressing that the reform is alive, it's to remind the opposition that if they don't reach a consensus, the coalition can always unilaterally renew and revive uh, the, judicial <clears throat> the judicial overhaul. I do think that Netanyahu, if it's up to Netanyahu, he would have uh, talks go on forever, um, and uh, or at least until he gets an invitation to the White House. Um, and by the way, there's a sense that also from the opposition point of view, or at least some figures in the opposition, they also are fine with the talks going on forever, because they say that's our best way at stopping the coalition without the talks. 
the coalition can unilaterally remove, renew the legislation with the 64 seat majority. So I think it actually serves both sides to have the presidential talks exist and kind of keep the reform between life and death. Um, the only thing that it doesn't create, it doesn't create the stability that the economic markets need. As long as it's between dead or alive, I think uh, that it, uh, the Israeli economy will find it a bit more challenging to recuperate from the crisis it's in right now. Um, indeed. You mentioned uh, the issue that uh, the diplomatic issue that that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is very keen to get his invitation to the uh, to the White House. I presume it's not just about the invitation, but about the very serious um, geostrategic issues of Iran and potential uh, um, engagement with Saudi Arabia that he wants to uh, to make sure that the President Biden is on board and that they are coordinated with Israel. I just wondered how we square that. We've seen just in the last few days more moves within the West Bank over the uh, the resettlement of Homesh, which was uh, basically the law that was passed earlier this year, abrogating the disengagements. This was part of a long-standing commitment that the Israeli government made to the U.S. How do we reconcile those kind of moves and how Mr. Netanyahu can balance the agenda of the right wing of his coalition between the bigger strategic goals with regard to Iran and that coordination with the U.S. Well, so far he hasn't been balancing it so well, right? Or at least, right. uh, at least it doesn't seem so from the amount mm. of uh, international condemnations his government has received in the past week. Definitely, Netanyahu is trying to, you know, juggle between this very extreme right coalition and the and the White House. He's sending Ron Dermer to Washington alongside with the National Security Advisor. Tachia Negbi to try, I think, to soften up the White House and see if he can get a meeting at the White House. And of course, many of the things that the government has been doing have been counter-effective to uh, Netanyahu's big goal of Iran and Saudi Arabia. I don't see him challenge, uh, dealing it with it so well. I mean, I think he's uh, struggling and not successfully very much so, so far. Uh, I think that... Uh, Netanyahu hopes that perhaps, you know, the, the prospect of normalization with Saudi Arabia will be enough in order to discipline his government and discipline the right wing elements in his government. But so far, it hasn't been able to do so. Also, uh, um, if any deal is to be made with Saudi Arabia, it will be definitely a deal that will be difficult for Smotrich and Benville to swallow because it will include at least some benefits for the Palestinians. And let's say in the in Netanyahu's government's current composition, that could definitely be a big problem. But I don't think we're there yet. I think that Netanyahu is very much keen on diverting his agenda back to the diplomacy arena and to the security arena because he wants to shy away from the reform. He wants to shy away from the grave economic situation, the cost of living. But so far, I don't see the U.S. cooperating with Netanyahu so quickly. Yet again, Netanyahu hasn't been invited to the White House for over five months. Um, it's not clear if and when he's going to be invited to the White House. This is something that Israeli media is constantly 
you know, obsessing about. Um, he might not even be invited to the White House and perhaps only meet Biden, you know, at the side, President Biden at the sidelines of um, at the sidelines of the uh, of the uh, UN uh, General Assembly in September. But also, if you notice, Netanyahu, when he launched his government at the beginning, he was very busy with international flights. He went to Paris, he went to London, he went to uh, Berlin, he went to Rome. And in the past uh, two or three months, he hasn't been going anywhere. A, he's not invited in probably to places that he wants to go. He hasn't achieved, uh, received an official invitation to the UAE yet, even though he has been invited to a conference there uh, um, later this year, but he hasn't been invited to the UAE. And I think that uh, um, he hasn't yet been able to convince the world that there's a difference between him and his right-wing government. And he's been, Netanyahu has been trying to assure his international partners that he is in charge of the right-wing government, but on the ground, it doesn't seem so. It seems like Smotrich and Benkvir are pushing him to much more right-wing policy than the one he is uh, promising his uh, counterparts in uh, international capitals. Fascinating. I think we've run out of time and exhausted a great deal of coverage there. So thank you very much indeed, as ever. And we will stay tuned and uh, keep watching events. But thank you very much indeed for your insight today. Thank you. Happy to be here.